from the land of the free and the home of the Chiefs, with two-man coverage of the red and gold, this is the Locked On Chiefs Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It's Locked On Chiefs, and we have a great show for you today. We are joined by one of KC Star's A-Team. We will get to that in a little bit. My name is Ryan Tracy. I'm the founder of Rogue Analytics and one of your hosts. You can find all the written stuff uh, that I produce over on ChiefsDigest.com as well as LockedOnChiefs.com. I know you know all about that, so let's get into it. Little bit of news updates uh, on two fronts. One, uh, Hunter Henry ended up with a lacerated kidney is the report. Uh, and obviously, Benny Logan was flagged for uh, unnecessary roughness in that game. Uh, I have a GIF out there that I just made. It's still a little bit peculiar to me because I don't see the impact area being around the kidney. Maybe it's it's just the sheer velocities that the two athletes are running at. But uh, hit still looks pretty clean to me. Because it was flagged, because there's a serious injury, still expect Benny Logan to be fine this week. We will have to see what comes of that. Also of note that Kareem Hunt has done something pretty miraculous. On the season, both running and passing is now totaled. 70 broken tackles, missed tackles this season. Uh, another good day out for him. Very, very intriguing. Big day from scrimmage. Look for that to continue as they continue to ramp him up. This old line is starting to pull it all together. If they can keep that up these next two weeks, they should be in good shape. So keep an eye out for that. Now, uh, we have a special guest, David Hewlett, has a unique perspective being down on the sidelines every game on and along the bench, uh, near the players, near the coaches, uh, and he shoots all those amazing pictures for the Kansas City Star. We talk a lot about his perception and how he sees interactions between the different players and between the coaches, as well as uh, get a little geeky at the end about some camera stuff. So uh, please check out the rest of the podcast network. Hit us with those iTunes reviews with your Twitter handle for the PFF giveaway. Uh, And we have some great promotions coming later in the week. But here's David Hewlett from the Star. And today, folks, we have a special treat for you. Uh, The uh, member of the A-team that no one really sees because he's so busy taking pictures of other people. Uh, Welcome, David Hewlett, to the show. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate you inviting me. You know, and I did that specifically because I really like – not only are your photos amazing, and I – Love to see them, especially when you, when you get those unique angles that that not everybody else is going to put up on a, a ESPN site or, or an NFL.com. But what you get to see and hear in terms of player interaction is probably the most interesting thing for me. Is it that way for you? Yeah, I think it's uh, one of the things that I think that people respond to the pictures to is that the, the the still pictures look quite a bit different than what you're used to seeing on the network broadcast. What generally you're seeing is that long TV shot from the press box kind of looking down on the field, and uh, it's that's the best angle to kind of see how the plays form. But when you're down on the sideline, usually the network camera is kind of a wide shot, and they're kind of shooting like the maybe the guys going over the pylon or something like that. Um what I th- what I think on still cameras is when you shoot that long lens and you've got that background that goes out of focus, it really like shows the game in sort of a different visual perspective. And I think people respond to that. And there's also a thing about just seeing a still image, you know, that the photographer is sort of showing the viewer, hey, this is this is the best moment. This is the key thing. 
take a look at this and you can sort of look at it and pause it instead of sort of rewinding it like a gif and that sort of thing. Um, and then being down on the bench, you know, just literally being, you know, three feet from the edge of the bench, you can hear a lot of stuff that the guys are saying, um, sort of how they act, their mannerisms, you know, what's Andy Reid doing? What's Matt Nagy saying? Who's Bob Sutton talking to? You know, who's quarreling? Who's hugging each other? There's a lot of kind of things that a, a lot of times the network broadcast doesn't, doesn't pick up on. I think it's hard for a lot of people to pick up on it. I mean, I, I know this has been a terrible, crushing, losing streak, but uh, for a while I started calling you the fifth horseman of the apocalypse, by the way. <laughs> uh, but that's the thing is the, when things break down and you're there in such proximity to that, that those are some of the most unique things. And the, the first guy that I'd like to ask you about is is the change or what you saw in terms of progression of how Marcus Peters related to his teammates through that losing streak and, and what your, your reaction was to how he was with them on the sidelines in this, this comeback game. Well, it's, you know, he's always been pretty tight with his secondary group. And I found that, you know, he was, he wasn't being ostracized necessarily by the other cornerbacks and safeties. I think that actually he's pretty well liked on the team. He doesn't talk to the media much, but I've always got the sense that, um, the, the players on the team know how much he wants to win. And I think his, uh, personality traits, I think are understood much better by the players than they are by fans and the media. Uh, so I never really got the sense that he was being sort of ostracized on the bench. Obviously after his game on, uh, Saturday night against LA, and I almost said San Diego against Los Angeles. Um, you know, the, there were there were hugs and there were, uh, you know, Marcus was dancing on the sideline and there were, you know, his body gyrations. And you could tell that he was really kind of dialed into feeling the love of having all of, uh, you know, the two interceptions and the strip fumble. So he had a fantastic game. And sure, everybody feels great when they perform well. Um, I guess you could look at it at that New York Jets game of him leaving the sideline. You kind of go back to that, whether or not, you know, he served his time and, and I'm certainly not apologizing for Marcus Peters at all. Um, but his, his behavior, it's like the way Sam Mellinger talks about it. It's the Marcus Peters experience. It's a little bit like, uh, it's a little bit like a ride at Disneyland. You know, you might get ill. Because you're, you know, it's a roller coaster going around, but it, but at the end of the day, it is entertaining and fun. And that's kind of what I, how I see Marcus. I mean, he, he's really super interesting to photograph because, you know, he is flamboyant. He is visually flamboyant. So, um, I photograph him every game, even during timeouts, just because he's usually doing something, amping up the crowd, talking to his teammates. He and Justin Houston talk a lot. Um, it's it's kind of it is kind of a he's an interesting guy. I wish he would kind of talk to us more because I think uh, fans could see that he has that real true desire to win, and it's sh it's showcased on on the field. It may not be on the network broadcast, but I, I see that more. I think just being on the field and seeing him a lot. 
Yeah, I have to agree. I see that when I'm in the stadium myself. And I think un, maybe unlike some of the, the more high-profile corners we've seen in the past over the years, it seems like very much so that his outside persona – uh, to the fan base, to everyone outside of that locker room, is starkly different from what his teammates get to see. And it seems like um, for all the hubbub that's been this season, for all the different reasons, um, that the locker room trusts him. And I don't I don't see myself any reason why there's internal reason not to you know look to extend him or, or continue to have him on this team. Do you think that's true or am I missing something? Well, you know, we're only in the locker room for about 15 minutes, so it is, it's hard to get a whole synopsis of how the players relate to each other in that 15 minutes. Um, because you might see a guy on a particular day who's not in there, uh, and you might think, oh, well, he's, you know, he's not a, maybe the first impression is, oh, he's not a locker room guy. Well, maybe he's not in the locker room because he's lifting weights or he's watching film. It's hard for us to kind of tell how that locker room, um, how players interact with specific other players. Um, I, I do think that Marcus's obvious desire for winning, you know, is is like a layer of icing over the cake. And I think a lot of a lot of players can when they see his desire for winning, they, they're they're willing to tolerate. Maybe, I don't know if you want to word, use the word antics. Um, but I think I've always gotten the feeling that he's been respected and liked in the locker room. Now, I don't know how that, how it, re, how they reacted to him leaving the field after the Jets. Maybe that was something that he caught a lot of blowback from or he had a talking to. Um, and, and that's another thing, you know, people always talk about Eric Berry being in the locker room, I've been seeing him more in the locker room. And, you know, as Sam had brought up, Eric Berry's one of those guys that you wouldn't want Eric Berry to come up to you and have him tell you that he's disappointed in you. You know, it would just be like, that would be like, oh, man. It'd be like your high school teacher saying, you know, I expected more from you. Mm -hmm. It'd just be like, oh, sorry, man. You know, like... A lot of other guys would yell. I think all Eric Berry would have to do is say, hey, man, that was disappointing. And you'd just be and like, that's yeah. enough. Yeah, it's like, I'm not going to do that again. Well, and I'm glad you brought him up because I, I wanted to ask about him too. And I, the thing that stands out to me, um, not only is we've known what an inspiration he is, but obviously his presence the last couple games. But what I notice is it used to be, at least you know, in years past, that injured players were kind of not pariahs, but uh, distanced themselves from the team in terms of being on the sidelines. Injured players yeah. went about their rehab and were kind of, you know, off on their own, still part out of, of sight, out of mind. Yeah, exactly. And, and I wonder, is this is in your perception? Is is it their teammates, his teammates, looking? For him, for his leadership, because there's somewhat of a vacuum, or is it is it just that he's that passionate himself? Why the change? I guess I don't. You know, it that's a good question. I, maybe the coaching staff invited him to be back out on the field, knowing that he's kind of an emotional leader. I did see. Um, to be fair, I saw Chris Conley on the bench um, during the Chargers game, and that was the first time I'd seen. Now he may have been on the bench and I didn't see him, but uh, 
that was the first time I'd seen Conley on the bench too. Two guys with Achilles injuries who are back out there and, you know, both of them not, you know, I don't see signs of limping or anything like that. I, it's not to say that they're going to come back, but I, I do wonder if the coaching staff, you know, when they were having that losing streak, like, you know, Eric, why don't you come out on the bench? That, that wouldn't be a shocking thing for me to, to find out if that happened. Um, because I think he was, once he was off crutches, um, you know, he was certainly able to stand on the bench, uh, whether or not he did that so as to not be a distraction. And then maybe during their losing streak, maybe that distraction, that distraction turns into leadership. I'm not sure. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all with, with the kind of person that Eric Berry is that he was invited or requested to be back on the bench. Well, you can certainly see how it paid off. I think it's interesting that Chris Conley was was there as well because that's not that that Ron Parker's not a good leader for that position group, but for DBs in general, we we know they depend on Eric Berry. The whole team depends on Eric Berry for his leadership. But I I think another young position group is the wide receivers. And I I know that early in the season, Chris Conley was taking the lead in terms of being the the mature statesman kind of uh, role, at least to – public perception. Um, and I wonder how much input maybe you saw from him uh, in terms of interacting with the guys that are on the field now. Um, as far as Conley, mm-hmm. um, I had seen, I see, had seen him in the last couple of minutes of the game when I was behind the bench and due to some NFL restrictions, I can't photograph behind the bench. I can photograph to the sides of the bench because they don't want still photography of, guys looking at those tablets. Well, it used to be like big, like Polaroids, the, the instant right. pictures. Now it's on tablets. So it's a little, would be a little harder to see that on a tablet. But, um, I saw him standing near the wide receiver group. Uh, and that was when the chiefs were on defense and I didn't see him talking to anyone specifically, but he was standing with the wide receiver group. Um, and Chris Conley, again, his personality strikes me as, is very thoughtful, cerebral kind of guy. And it wouldn't surprise me again with the age of the wide receiver group with Tyreek and DeMarcus and some of the other, you know, younger receivers, you know, Albert Wilson is the senior receiver in there in, in his, in his fourth season. Right. I mean, at most, 26 or something, right? Yeah. I think most teams have a receiver on their core. That's has been there longer than four years. So the chiefs are really young at that position. and. You know, Conley, I think before he, he tore his Achilles in Houston, he was really becoming, had really become that third down possession type receiver, the kind of guy that I think it seemed like ran really crisp routes and that Alex and Conley were kind of in that they had that mental pipeline together where in this offense, you kind of need to know exactly where your guys are going to cut their routes. Um, or even adjust them in mid route based on the, on the coverage. Um, so I think, I did think that they missed Conley quite a bit in particularly when they started that, that slide. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Albert has, has stepped up and certainly Tyreek does his, you know, superhuman thing. Um, I, you know, I, DeMarcus has been pretty quiet. It, you know, I think he is still learning that highly complex offense of trying, you know, figuring out exactly where to cut routes, where to chip a guy, 
you know, where to, to freelance on when Smith is scrambling, what's going to happen on a scramble route, all those kind of things. And I think that, that particularly in Reed's complex offense, I think that comes just with time and just with playing time. I think Albert Wilson has kind of filled in that Conley role a little bit, but you wonder if Conley being on the bench, if he's, you know, sitting there giving some tips to DeMarcus and, and Hill about things that Alex Smith likes from his receivers. I, I find that interesting too. And it, it's funny to me until, until the Conley injury, DeMarcus Robinson was practicing with Pat Mahomes more. So mm-hmm. I wonder if that's not a chemistry that maybe has progressed beyond where it is with Alex Smith right now, just because of the sheer number of repetitions. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of look at Mahomes as like the ultimate freelancer, you know, like, oh, he, he's almost better when he's scrambling around. I, I saw him make some passes in training camp and, you know, training camp's a different thing than games, but I saw him make some passes in training camp that I was literally were jaw droppers. And, and Mahomes seems to be so good when he's on the run when most cornerbacks and DBs are kind of like, oh, okay, I've, I've covered this guy for six seconds. I'm good. And then here comes some 55-yard on the laser bomb from Mahomes. And I, I'm assuming that we'll see some of that next year. And, and Smith is such a precise uh, – like he almost seems like um, he's like a doctor, whereas I, I kind of look at Mahomes sort of like a chef. Like here's the ingredients and – I'm going to put this together and like kind of based on feel and, you know, and, and Smith seems like, you know, I, I want A, B, C, D all done precisely. And when that happens, here comes the pass and the offense is moving. Um, yeah. As far as DeMarcus and Mahomes, I, I'm sure that they're kind of dialed in together. Um, it, it seems like Robinson has not seen the targets of late in the last couple of games that he saw right when he first got on the active squad. And maybe he's working on just getting in tune with Smith. And if Smith doesn't trust him, maybe he's looking to Kareem Hunt for the check down pass, or he's looking to Kelsey or heaven forbid, Demetrius Harris. Oh, stop. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't mean to get, I, I should apologize for being cat either. <laughs> it's a sore subject around here. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> and that aside, it, it brings me back to another kind of sore subject. And I, I'm really interested to see what you may have gleaned in terms of the evolution. I, I think everyone's happy with what Matt Nagy's been able to do in terms of uh, changing the play call, changing the timing of the play call. Um, but you, you all touched on it on the A-Team show briefly, and I cannot do voices like Therese, so I'm not even going to try that. But <laughs> He is a treasure, isn't he? He is just a treasure. I just love Therese. Yeah, and he's been on the show a couple times and hasn't done a voice for us yet, so next time I think I have a request. It's, it's weird. He does not respond to requests well. He has to do it on his own, and when he does it on his own, it's he does his voices very vibrantly. But I think he threw one out there just as we were, as we were starting to, to hear about this, and I want to follow up on it because I, I'm more interested in it going down the line and, and what maybe has changed since Nagy took over the play calling. And that's the interaction between Andy Reid and Bob Sutton. And have you seen a, a dramatic change? Has it been subtle or do you notice anything at all? You know, I've, uh, what I generally see is, and I look over to the bench in between plays, either every play or every other play. And there's, 
kind of based on where the still photographers are, there's a lot of times that the, that I don't see Andy because there's too many ball boys or network TV guys or NFL films or the, the cable runners or however many, you know, the 50 people that are on the sidelines along with the photographers. A lot of times I don't get an angle where I can see, um, Andy Reed, but when I do see him, I have seen him generally the, the kind of joke was is like, Oh, well, here is another picture of Andy Reed looking at his play sheet because that is essentially is what the picture that I got over and over and over again. Now that uh, Nagy is calling the plays, Andy seems like he has extra time now to talk to Bob Sutton, to talk to referees, to talk to his receivers and even some, even the linebackers as they're coming off the field where before that, when he was calling plays, he was really absorbed in calling the plays. And it almost seemed like it maybe took him a little bit out of the game. Now that he has Matt calling the plays, it certainly appears that he has more interaction with the players on the team. So I have not, you know, it's hard to know what the conversation is between he and Sutton. Uh, Therese has sort of joked that, uh, you know, Andy would come over like, hey, babe, you got some blitzes on there. Come on, let's let's see what you got there. I'm sure you got some something good. Why don't, why don't we call something good here? Because uh, Andy has that sort of sarcasm about him that occasionally comes out in pressers. Um, uh, and it's it, it would be interesting to know kind of off the record what how Bob thinks of that. Like, oh, I kind of preferred it when right, Andy was, wasn't, wasn't in my ear all the time. <laughs> but, it, but long and short, it is more in terms of volume speaking with Bob and, and being collaborative, right? Yeah, it's, it certainly seems like I haven't seen with my own eyes. I've heard that it, that it happened and, and it was on the network broadcast of Andy either yelling or shouting or whatever word you want to use it at Sutton. Um, and I, that doesn't surprise me. It, it's, it does seem like the defense has really kind of both the defense and the offense have really sort of remade themselves now coming out of these last two after the Raiders and Chargers game. It, it looks like a different team. It just, it honestly does look like a different team. And um, I think the question is, you know, how and why did that losing streak happen and how and why were they able to pull themselves out of it? And maybe just changing the ingredients of how the how the plays were called, um, how the interaction is between the coaches on the sidelines. It, it could be that. It could be that Alex Smith feels more comfortable. It could be that Reggie Raglan is feeling more comfortable calling the play, calling the formations. There could be a lot of different things going on. Whatever is going on, it's nice that it seems to be on the way to correction, if not corrected already. I think it's a good thing to see overall. And like you said, it's all kind of come together these last two games and plenty of changes there. Then maybe it's a, more than the sum of its parts. It, I, I tell you what, it's it, it's been a super unusual season, as fans know, to have that the first five games where everything was was cooking along and it was like, man, this is like the – Oh, three Patriots here. And then this, that a skid that was almost worthy of the two and 14 year. And now it's just like, now we scored 30 points against the Patriot or against the chargers. And 
took care of the Raiders at home. The Raiders didn't look terrible last night against the Cowboys. I did think that that first down call was a bizarre. A little iffy. <laughs> yeah. It was a weird thing. Um, I never saw someone pull a card out of their pocket. Yeah. I was like, where does that piece of paper come from? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, you know, they took care of the they, – they do seem to have the AFC West teams figured out. And is that familiarity? Is it the change in the play calling? Is it the fact that they've kind of stirred the drink and, and kind of gotten out of their their comfortable rhythm? And now that there's a little more tension, maybe within the within the assistant coaches and coordinators and head coach, maybe there's a little conflict now, and that conflict brings out better play calling, better formations, better plays. I don't know. It's like it. It, cert- it certainly looks like that to me um, without being in the meeting rooms and without hearing what they're saying to each other on the sideline. It, that seems to be a theory that kind of fits in with this kind of reboot of the season. Yeah, I have to think it looks like that too. And before I let you go, I got to ask you one geek photo question. Oh, good, what's, good. Your, what's your go-to lens on the sideline? I shoot with um, um, the star provides me great gear, and I, I should thank them for that. I shoot with a Nikon D5, which is a fantastic camera. I know a lot of a lot of sports photographers shoot shoot Canon. Uh, I'm just I just happen to be on the Nikon side. I shoot ninety percent of ninety five percent of my pictures with a 400 millimeter f 2.8 lens, and I shoot it. If photographers will understand this, I shoot it at f 2.8, so I get that background to go as out of focus as possible. So my zone of sharpness for a play uh, is probably four to six inches, maybe. So I need the the face and the helmet to be in that zone of sharpness. Now, um, the, the camera autofocus does a wonderful job, so I will credit Nikon for that. But um, when you get that focus, when it pops on that particular lens, on a 400-millimeter lens, it it almost looks there's almost like an unreal quality to it where it almost looks like it's in a studio rather than in a stadium because again you don't see that sort of look on the television broadcast so the pictures look they really do look different maybe this is just photo geek guy talking they look uh different than what you're used to seeing on television and is that the the zoom on a prime lens? Is that what creates that compression? Exactly, a four hundred millimeter lens is a pretty good pretty good magnification. Uh, we have a six hundred millimeter lens, but I've been burned too many times with guys jumping out of my frame, so I shoot just just a little bit looser with a four hundred. And I'm sort of I'm so dialed into that lens now that um, that's just sort of the way I see football now is through a four hundred millimeter. Which uh, people would be like, well, how far is that? So if I'm at like the, if I'm at the goal line, and the team is at the thirty yard line, probably, or maybe the twenty five yard line, that's about foot to helmet on a horizontal picture. Like the guys are basically just fitting in the frame from twenty five yards away, and so as they as they come closer to me, I I obviously kind of crop up the you know the feet are the first thing to go and then the legs and the waist as they come closer to me I center it up so they're you know in the center of the frame 
Well, I think it's interesting. I shoot Nikon myself, and I think it's uh, you don't run into many Nikon shooters on sidelines, so that's great. But only only the best people shoot Nikon, right? Exactly. <laughs> the Canon people, you can't trust them. You just can't trust them. <laughs> They're everywhere. Those gray lenses make you nervous. Exactly. Um, last little thing: knowing how tight you are there, and, and guys jumping out of your your field of view, how many images do you shoot in a normal game? You know, it depends on the on the amount of offense. There have been games where I've shot, you know, like a a, a forty two to thirty eight game. I'll shoot three thousand frames, uh, like that that twelve to nine game against the Giants. I bet I shot eighteen hundred pictures, and I'll probably turn around. Probably, tur- I'll probably send thirty thirty five selects to the paper out of that. Now, a lot of that is key plays of the game, um, celebrations off key plays of the game, maybe some interesting viewpoints outside of the, you know, in the tunnel or guys getting, you know, getting introduced or something like that. But the, the way the, the star works, and I think probably the way most newspapers work is they really want pictures of the key plays. They're not really interested in, incomplete passes in the second quarter that had no bearing on the game. So really it kind of comes down to uh, when I'm looking through my photo take of the day, it's, you know, I sort of have in the back of my mind, okay, that third and 16, that conversion was really a key play that uh, four yard jet sweep for a touchdown. That was a key play. Travis Kelsey going up, you know, catching that ball and landing on his back. That was a key play. Sort of like, so I'm, I'm initially looking for those plays first. Well, that's gotta be just the sheer volume. And are you, are you running on that, uh, that freeze frame um, burst mode when you, when you see plays like that, or are you trying to actually focus in on guys in different spots on the field? Usually it's like I, when I, when I'll like, if I see Smith dropping back, and I'll see his arm go back, and a lot of times I'll I'll swing the camera and I'll look downfield to see who's open, and then I'll try to get on that particular whether it's Kelsey or whether it's Hill. If I see them having a step on a guy, I'll swing the camera around, and if I do it right, and if the and if the player is sort of in the in a good position on the field, I can get the pass and the catch in the same sequence, uh, which is hard to do. Usually I have to sacrifice the pass or I have to sacrifice the catch. Now, if it looks like Smith is going to get sacked and hit and fumble, I'll, I'll, I'll make that sort of decision. Oh, I'm going to stay on Smith and maybe I'll miss the catch. But um, ideally to get the, the pass and the catch is that's when I'm, that's when I'm earning my keep. Wow, that's impressive. Folks, if you have not seen David's pieces on, on the anatomy of taking these shots uh, out there on the star, uh, you need to go find them. And you, there's going to be more coming, right, David? There are. Um, when when they went through their losing streak, I, I found that the interest dropped off quite a bit in explaining my photography on Chiefs Photography. But now that they're winning, we will start those up again. Uh, I, I love reading them, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on with us. Hey, thanks a lot. I sure appreciate it. And folks, that's David Hewlett. Follow him at David Photo KC on Twitter. I know you know his address and all that. And uh, we'll be uh, back with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Locked On Chiefs podcast. 
While you're out there, give us a rating or review. And reach out to us on Twitter, at Ryan Tracy NFL and at Chris Clark NFL. We'll talk to you next time.